CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. In the wake of the Weinstein scandal, many called for a boycott of the films of Roman Polanski and Woody Allen. Yet 20th century literary critics encouraged us to look at the text alone and cited the death of the author. Can and should we separate the artist from the art? Are the misdeeds of writers, thinkers and artists irrelevant to their work? Or should we excise the morally indefensible? Your host, Yana Teller. We have a very interesting and diverse panel this morning. Stanley Fish, the eminent literary critic and legal scholar. Nell Stevens, who is a memoirist. And she's also written for The Guardian, The Sunday Times and Vogue. John Harvey, who is a Cambridge Life Fellow and an expert on visual culture. Emma Solkovich, who is an activist and performance artist from New York. Solkovich is famous for the pieces Mattress Performance, Carry the Weight. Um, and I'll let Stanley Fish start. Uh, when I started thinking about this topic, my first insta- instinct was to, ans- to say that you cannot separate the artist from the art uh, because I'm an intentionalist and believe that uh, meaningful marks and signs are only meaningful uh, if one assumes that they've been produced uh, or designed by an intentional being. Therefore, the separation of the artist from the artist is, from my point of view, impossible. Uh, But then I had a second thought, recalling a colleague who was a terrible person. Uh, He was absolutely uh, untrustworthy, malevolent, Uh, said and did horrible things behind your back. But when I invited him into my class uh, to explain a technical matter that I would not have been able to explain, he bent himself to the task in a way so pure that you could see, uh, almost see, uh, as he began to talk, uh, that the zeal uh, for his uh, subject burnt away all the malign aspects of his personality, and he was another person. And so it occurred to me that no doubt there were artists like that. And then I recalled that T.S. Eliot, in Tradition and Individual Talent, had indeed defined art and artistry as the extinction of personality. Uh, So that the artist, rather than bringing with him and transmuting all uh, of the uh, him or her and, and, and transmuting all of the aspects of a personality instead concentrates and focuses in the way that my colleague did. But then, this is all a but then, uh, but then I remembered Woody Allen. Uh, I, I live part of the year in Manhattan and as I went around the corner from my apartment last year, there was a Woody Allen movie being made. So Woody Allen is right there. Uh, what am I to do with that? And of course, you can't separate Woody Allen from Woody Allen movies because 
Woody Allen movies are all about Woody Allen. So much so that distinguished actors uh, and actresses uh, like Michael Caine and others uh, speak in Woody Allen tones uh, when they appear uh, in his movies. So I thought there must be a distinction between authors uh, who perform as my colleague did and burn away all of their moral warts and artists like Woody Allen who make art out of their moral warts. So therefore it would be uh, a wrong act of critical deportment to ignore that. And then I thought, <laughs> there's also the distance question. Caravaggio murdered somebody. The great English poet Ben Jonson, as far as we know, murdered two people. It might have been more. But when I see a Caravaggio uh, a painting or read a Ben Jonson poem, I'm not thinking about that. Apparently, Robert Frost, a great American poet, was also, according to his biographers, one of the vilest people who ever lived, <laughs> betraying and being cruel to everyone. But when I read The Road Not Taken, I don't think of that. So that led me to another thought. Maybe it's distance. Maybe the museum effect kicks in. And when they're dead or hanging somewhere or part of the Harvard Library of Classics, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And then my final thought was that perhaps this question, the question that we've been asked here to consider, um, is in fact misstated because it assumes the distinct and stable identity of both the artist and the work of art. But in the last 40 years, those assumptions have been exploded uh, by performance artists uh, like Emma, uh, by people who make art out of garbage uh, and uh, then strew it around the floor, uh, uh, by those like uh, Robert Rauschenberg who makes art by erasing uh, a drawing of de Kooning's uh, and, say, and then says that destruction is in fact the hallmark of art. So perhaps our entire panel uh, is a mistake. But have to, <laughs> after having raised this question, I find myself at the end of my time, so I won't answer it. Well, thank you very much then. But before we leave, I think we will <laughs> hear what the others have to say. Oh, uh, <laughs> <Nell>. <laughs> oh it says always those others. <laughs> oh, maybe I don't need to comment at this point. Um, I think that was a really interesting introduction to this question. I come to it from a position of studied and passionate ambivalence, which is not to say that I don't care, but rather that I feel myself to be pulled very strongly in two different directions. One is a really personal reaction of rage and outrage about the disgraceful behaviours of so many normally men um, to people, <laughs> normally to women. And I think perhaps one thing we should lean on, and, and Sammy touched on it perhaps, is, is the relevance of the personal to all of this. This is a personal question to a lot of people and to most women. <laughs> um, it brings up a lot of memories and trauma and that we can't lose sight of that when we talk about this in an academic tone. The other sort of pull to my um, attention and, and opinion is a rejection of absolutes and, and a real discomfort with, I think, a perceived lack of nuance in the conversation when we talk about boycotting or cutting out certain artists from our, from our canon. Um, so I'm just going to use this time to quickly dig into a few of those potential difficulties or nuances or hypocrisies. The first is to highlight who we are willing to 
offer to this conversation of whether or not we can separate the art and the artist. We're, it comes back over and over again to Woody Allen. Um, we're very interested in trying to, trying to see whether we can possibly separate the art from the artist when the artist happens to be a rich white man. We are far less interested in having that conversation about Juno Diaz, a Dominican-American writer, or Sherman Alexie, a Native American writer. The people who are being punished for this most severely tend not to be the most powerful people. And that is something I think we have to stay aware of when we talk about these things. Um, and the other question I have is what our goal is when we decide we cannot separate the art from the artist. When we talk about boycotts in other situations, other contexts, we tend to have a financial goal. The goal is to harm someone financially by not buying their product. In which case you would think that this conversation would end upon the death of the artist. Um, but if we look at someone like Naipaul, who recently died, his death was really the beginning of a whole lot of conversations about whether or not we can accept him. And that's not going to, if we don't buy a Naipaul book, it no longer harms a dead man. So what we're looking at actually is a cleansing of the canon. Um, and then we come back to this question that Stanley has raised about distance, um, staying on Naipaul. Um, the, the parallels in the behaviors between Naipaul and Charles Dickens are extraordinary. Dickens was a passionate racist. He called for the, called for the extermination of the Indian race. He was a vile misogynist who treated women in his life absolutely appallingly. And yet we think of him as very cozy. We, we cling to this avuncular image of Dickens who created Christmas as we know it and all of these things. And again, is this really just a question of, of whiteness and power and ma masculinity? Emily Bronte in The Guardian recently was told we, we shouldn't be reading Wuthering Heights because she was a difficult woman and she, if she'd been alive today, she would have been a Tory. Um, so who are we? Who are we punishing when we when we enforce these these kinds of absolutes? And, and is there a chance that we can open up the canon in a more interesting way when we choose to obliterate certain people from it? Good. Thank you very much. Then we have now more questions again, so we do have something to debate. Um, I will give the word then to John. Thank you. <coughs> uh, we ban from our television entertainers who abuse children. Child abuse is vile and a crime. Uh, of course, murder is also a crime, and Caravaggio murdered someone, and Ben Johnson may have murdered someone, but they weren't career murderers, whereas uh, John Ruskin, one would have to say, was a lifelong paedophile. This is something I got to know more about when I wrote a novel about John Ruskin, his wife, and her lover, the subject of a portrait, where I came up against Ruskin, what he called his terrible weakness. He said, I am very naughty about tinies that's little girls, and I've less and less hope of mending. Um, he wasn't your standard paedophile, because I think really a part of his psyche was arrested at a very early, in a way, pre-sexual stage, that he wrote letters to friends in baby talk. Me so misby, it used to be so pity baby for wee tots to play, where I think wee tots is both uh, us tots and uh, tiny tots. Um, of course, you can have an inner child, without being a paedophile, and maybe quite a lot of us have inside us somewhere an inner child. Uh, the contemporary artist Grayson Perry will dress up in little girl clothes to perform his inner little girl, Claire, as it were, he outs her, and it's, um, everything becomes very, very balanced and complete. John Ruskin couldn't do that. John Ruskin was stuck, a part of him was stuck inside a kind of inner little boy girl who loved to play with little girls. Um, like later paedophiles, he used his credit as a teacher to get into girls' classrooms. Sometimes parents campaigned to have him shut out. 
how he wrote a letter to a friend in which he told him the tricks you used to need to use to get a little girl to kiss you. And for the law now, I guess that would be sexual touching. Um, we don't know exactly what he did, but I guess the question is, if we had more proof, should we boycott his books, all of them, none of them? Um, if they were pedo-porn, as it were, uh, I suppose one would. But his writings, his books, are great essays on art and social justice, and I don't think one wants to junk, junk them, just because Ruskin was also weird and creepy. And he was much worse than creepy. Uh, when his wife was nervously upset because he would not have sex with her, um, he wrote to her father, telling him that his daughter had incipient insanity. And that was preposterous and also monstrous. Um, later he fell in love, as is well known, with Rose Latouche when she was nine and he was 39. Uh, he contrived, it looks, a kind of mutual obsession and it may very well be that his pathology exacerbated her mental illness leading to anorexia and early death. And it's a twisted, tragic story. And here Ruskin is an artist. He drew her very often. But even those drawings are not actually pedo-porn. Uh, they're different, for instance, from Lewis Carroll's photos of Alice Liddell, the real Alice, whom he photoed posing as a beggar girl, which meant that she wore rags, which meant that you saw very much more of her than you would normally have seen of a Victorian little girl. Uh, Ruskin's drawings are not like that. Um, he mainly drew, uh, drew Rose's head, and actually the drawings, I think, are worth seeing for their beauty as art, whatever, however morbid the fairy tale may have been inside Ruskin's head. Kay. Thank you very much uh, for this insight. And Emma, uh, where do you go? As a professor, I've seen many art students, you know, set out to make an artwork about loneliness in society or the environmental crisis. Um, and their work functions more like a research project than, as corny as this may sound, an emotional outpouring from their soul. <laughs> I have tried to work this way, but I think that my most successful work comes from something more akin to the music writing process for musical composers. I imagine that they hear a tune in their head and then play the tune into existence. There are images in my head that haunt me like waking dreams until I manifest them in the physical world. When I was raped on the first day of my sophomore year at Columbia University by a classmate who turned out to be a serial rapist, I and two of the other six women who were assaulted by him reported our assaults to the school and the police. We wanted to keep our classmates safe, but we were met with so much pushback that we realized that our, aspir our aspirations were futile. It felt terrible. That feeling made me imagine, visualize myself carrying a mattress, and I had no idea why. I just saw this image. When I finally decided to do it and carry a mattress at Columbia, I realized that the mattress represented the weight of the assault, the subsequent, tweet, the subsequent treatment by the school and the NYPD, and the constant fear the other survivors and I shared of seeing our attacker on campus. Art creates a space 
for our fantasies to take shape when there is no room for them in the rigid status quo of reality. It's what allowed me to take the mess of feelings I'd stuffed down deep inside me and externalize them as something tangible, concrete, and while still big and unruly, much more manageable. Shouldn't Woody Allen have kept it that way too? He could have exercised his pedophilic desires in Manhattan so that he didn't have to manifest those desires in the real world. Roman Polanski should have been satisfied with his rape fantasies in the highly aestheticized realm of his film. Art failed for them because it wasn't enough. They needed more. Art is separate from the artist insofar as it stays art. It should be this way because it creates a realm for play that can be distinct from reality. I think that certain creators fail to maintain that distinction and allow their desires to bleed into the rest of their lives. In these cases, it wasn't we who failed to make the distinction between artist and author, it was they. This is why, when we debate these works, it is so hard to keep the discussion quarantined in the realm of abstract theory. It's why, when we as viewers view these films, we are haunted by the uncanny feeling that the films did not successfully fulfill those directors' desires. Art is, and should remain, home to the things that couldn't have happened otherwise. Thank you very much. Very good, very good. Um, so we have a lot of interesting topics going on here. Um, dimension of time, Stanley. So I would like you to, start with the answering this question, um, I'm able to drawing up again this, this idea of time that you talked about in your pitch. Well, the only thing I meant by time is what we might call the museumification effect. Uh, and that when that occurs, uh, we are no longer, and this is not, uh, we no longer worry about the kinds of issues uh, that Emma just raised uh, in her uh, wonderful uh, uh, presentation. Uh, we just, uh, to, to, to use uh, the language that has, uh, has sometimes been used in American politics, we give the dead artist a pass, uh, especially if the artist has been done dead for a long while. Uh, another artist I might have mentioned is a poet to whom I devoted over 50 years uh, of my life, and that is John Milton. Uh, in addition to being uh, generally uh, an awful husband and an even worse father uh, to his daughters, Milton was a virulent, vicious anti-Catholic. Uh, and anti-Catholicism is at the very heart of his work. It's not incidental. So there the work and the art meshed. Well, I'm a member of the Milton Society of America, uh, a, a, a hearty band of 500 Milton worshipers, and we never raise these issues. Uh, perhaps we should. Um, and can I also elaborate on what do we do with things like, you know, we all love Nabokov's Lolita, but wouldn't we feel different reading the book if we knew in real life he had kidnapped a 12-year-old and driven across America raping her time and again? Wouldn't it feel very different than how we now feel reading the, the novel? Can we sep make that separate? I don't think it would feel th that different if Nabokov had uh, been a Greek or Roman artist. We would have long since 
for, uh, forgiven that uh, or accepted it as a part, an interesting part of uh, biography and social studies. Uh, right, so now this is not a, this is not a recommendation, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but um, but but an ob but an observation. It may be that when one when one says something like what I've just said, uh, it marks the moment when the art is no longer alive uh, in a vital way as uh, Emma's art certainly is, and that it has become capable of being hung. Uh, capable of being hung uh, in a museum where both the artist and the observers of the art are free from everything and can go about their genteel behaviors uh, in perfect uh, confidence um, and indeed uh, in perfect complacence. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Right. Uh, I'll turn to you, John. Do you also believe that time somehow redeems the deeds of the artist and gave us the ability to just look at the art and forget what might have gone into it? I'm sure that's <coughs> true to an extent. It's also true with what happened a hundred years ago and so forth. You don't know what really happened. And I think at the present time, as with Woody Allen, uh, you need to know what actually really happened with Woody Allen. And uh, one of Woody Allen's wives has recently said uh, things are not exactly as they've been reported and so on. And you can't know about the past what would have led to a conviction, say, had the present law applied to past artists. I think the other side to the whole question of whether you can separate value judgments from uh, in art from morality is if you consider what happens to criminal acts in art and there's not only abuse may or may not be represented in art by Nabokov and others but for instance murder is a kind of basic ingredient of art whether you go back to Greek, Greek tragedies or whodunits at the present time the Oedipus of tragedy of Oedipus is a whodunit which turns out to be an eyedunit um, in crucifixions uh, old master paintings of the torments of uh, saints or modern films by Scorsese or Tarantino you've got the question whether the murder and the uh, violence and the cruelty that you see there um, whether you can can you judge it as art without morality being involved I think it's awfully hard to say you can judge it only as art without right. morality <laughs> coming in so when you you're dealing with crimes that are actually a central ingredient of the art Right. And would you think, we normally say if somebody gets punished for their misdeeds, they should be allowed then to re-enter society uh, and start, start over. Would that and also work? There was for some of the, the Polish writer, uh, Christian Moore. He murdered in year 2000 um, somebody uh, who he thought was the lo uh, lover of his wife. It wasn't discovered until 2003 when he wrote a novel about it. He was a crime author and there were some things that it was a fiction about this particular murder that um, 
only the murderer could have known, and a retired police officer saw that, and he ended up getting 25 years in jail. And the novel actually uh, sold a lot more after this case. Um, what do you consider of that? I'm very glad he got 25 years yes. in jail. <laughs> um, but would you but not the read novel? the novel? No, I, I, I'm not sure, but I might. Right. And it might be a good novel. It would be possible for it to be a good novel, um, although he was also yeah. a killer. And um, maybe we should ma wait for 50 years. But let me hear Emma on that, because if you were the victim or the family of then the person who had got murdered, wouldn't you say that all the people reading such a novel, are they accessory then to the crime? Totally. Um, so I think one, one of my friends puts it this way, like, if you pay this artist money, are you enabling more crimes to happen, right? Like, does that make you then somehow complicit in the crime since you're literally like sending him the money that helps him stay powerful and avoid these lawsuits, et cetera? Um, so I think that's always something we have to weigh and decide for ourselves whether it's something we want to actively participate in financially. Um, in terms of time and the dead, like the literally dead author, um, I think that, that it's really interesting, right? We would assume that with the increase in time and the increase in distance between us and the author, we would be able to forget more. But with the Me Too movement, with the way that the discourse is happening right now, with the internet as this huge archive where we can go and research all these things, we're actually finding out that as more time passes, we're digging up more dirt. There, there actually, with more time, we get weirdly closer to these assaults that have happened. So, so I'd, like to, I'd like to frame time as this thing that's working in both directions. Um, and then finally, uh, to, to kind of respond more directly to the other things that you've all been saying, which has been great, um, about whether we can, you know, can we appreciate the artwork by a person we know has committed a crime? I think it's really telling, and, and I'm grateful that you've, you've all been speaking in terms of specific artists, right? Like Stanley opened with like these very personal narratives of like artists that he's, um, that he's both worked with and experienced, and, and John has talked about artists he's deeply researched. I think that this is because we receive art as a very personal communication and it's a personal thing for each of us. Like we, as, as you said now, like it can't, we can't make these sweeping generalizations. Ultimately we have to, we have to evaluate these things as personal experiences. And this is why I'll speak for myself and not for everyone. But when I watch a Woody Allen film now, like I'm a little bit more tense. I'm not gonna like finish the popcorn, you know what I mean? Like there's different, we, we receive these things differently now and we can go ahead and be like, yes, well we should like clench our fists and finish the popcorn and enjoy it. But like art's so personal that it's really hard to like do that. Yeah. I'll cut in, uh, well I'll just let Nell come in here. Um, also on, on the power structures uh, that has led to you know, certain artists maybe getting away with things over time and how that influences us? Or well, yeah, I mean, I'll start there and also go back to this idea of the museum, right, which has traditionally been this site of static knowledge right, right. That, that this is, you know, a, a little blurb next to a, an image or, a, or an art, art piece. And that 
it's no longer how we use information or how we receive information. So a museum is not just a place of preserving knowledge, it's also a space of, of forgetting, right? That this is the only thing we will now know. And, and actually what Emma is saying is that the internet and, and our own like roles as individual researchers now means that we can move beyond a museum. And the museum is no longer has the kind of power it once did to set a certain narrative. And that means that, that we are all able to have a, a more personal individual relationship with every single artist that we encounter because there is no one structure detailing exactly how we should receive any one individual. Right. So what do we do with this? Now <laughs> we've established we do have a personal re uh, response. Uh, should we boycott the work of artists who we consider morally reprehensible? What do you say, John? This what well, we I do think with this the is a real question, because I think of some contemporary artists, I think either Quentin Tarantino or the uh, French novelist Michel Houellebecq, um, I think they are in their art uh, sometimes, um, but I'm not sure how much, morally reprehensible, uh, quite apart from what they do in their lives. For instance, in, in Quentin Tarantino, there's the question of the killings and the violence, and his, uh, there's an element of black comedy to it. So at the end of Kill Bill 1, um, the, when the heroine, who's the martial arts artist, has mutilated innumerable enemies very quickly, she says, um, those who have lost body parts must leave them behind because they are my trophies. And this, I think, is a, in a way a sort of great black, black joke. Um, but at the end of Kill Bill 2, uh, the heroine, the same heroine, is assaulted by a female assassin who's lost one eye and with her sort of martial art skills, the heroine claws out the remaining eye of the assassin and treads on it. You see her tread on the, oh, I suppose, a plastic eyeball. Now, I suppose, I feel there is a question whether there's something in Credit Tarantino's art which may or may not be morally reprehensible. At the same time, is it art? Is it good art? Is it bad art? How do you assess it? I think it is, I, I don't think there's an easy answer um, as to many things in art. Um, so, uh, so you I have to take it case I by case. Take it yeah. case. You can't just boycott it, I think. You take it case by case. But I certainly also think, in line with what Nell was saying, that you have a right not to go to attend the art of a particular person if you find their work or them because art is always made by people and the qualities of people are qualities in the art. You have a right not to read it if you don't want to, not to see the film. Mm. Uh, but would you see people who then do participate, do go to see the films of uh, Weinstein, or do go to a gallery of an artist who is considered a rapist, or so, that they contribute, like buying uh, you know, rages that have been stolen by somebody? It's, it's, are you a contributor? to their crimes well in some ways. Be, I mean, why are they going to that, yes. you know, what are they going for? Right. Is it what they get off on? Is it their fix? Yeah. Is it, are they going to sort of be, you know, conscientiously educated about what's going on in art? Right. And I think there's different motives and you have to make, you know, different judgments of different on cases. Yeah. Can I and I want to move on. on. Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, if you, you want to jump on in. Just on uh, I think the Weinstein film question is actually so much more complicated than, than perhaps we give it credit for because films are utterly collaborative, right? right? It's not a, one, a book authored by one person. And to boycott all films that Weinstein touched is actually profoundly problematic. Weinstein, I mean, Miramax distributed Paris is Burning, right? Which is this extraordinary platform given to trans people of color. 
And if we boycott anything Weinstein touched, we're actually harming all of the artists who have been given platforms by this person. And I, I think that's really important to lean into and say, you know, you cannot individualize films in the way that you might with books. Right, and, but even with, with books, like you know, then there are agents, there are lots of other and people involved. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's all an illusion that there is any one person behind any one piece of art, but I think films are particularly collaborative in that sense. And, and we have to think with boycotts, who, who are we meaning to harm and who are we inadvertently harming? Right, you wanted to come in on that. Stuff. Yeah, I think what we're talking about here is a clash between uh, two aesthetics or ways of thinking about aesthetics. Uh, the American journalist Wesley Morris recently said, in the same way we think about where our fruit or potatoes come from, we need to be asking where our entertainment is coming from. We need to ask who is making it. We need to ask how many asses were grabbed in the making of this movie or getting this show out or putting this record out. Uh, so there's that kind of question which we tends to regard the making of art just as the making of any other product. And just as we might boycott a companies whose uh, political views uh, we dislike uh, and not buy their products, we should do the same for art. Now this, on the other hand, um, is countered by uh, the ancient veneration of art. A veneration of art as not simply another object or product, uh, but a unique product. And that veneration has taken a legal form uh, in something called the Moral Rights of the Artists movement, uh, which flourished in the last 50 or 60 years, into actual legislation. In the United States, there's something called the Visual Artist Rights Act, which specifically says that we treat works of art in a unique and reverent way because A, they are the products of genius, then that little word turns up, and B, their works are the expression of that genius, and therefore it is a crime either to alter them uh, or to delete them, or in the case of sculpture, to move them from the site-specific place intended uh, by the sculptor. So you have these, so to the, to the ex I think answers to the question that we have been posing on this panel will vary uh, as, at, uh, as to, whether you believe art is something worthy of veneration and that the artist is a unique uh, genius, or whether you regard the making of art uh, just like uh, the making of other products which we might choose to consume or not to consume. Right, um, I'll move that then on to, to Emma because I know you've been involved in an active boycott of an artist who had transgressed, at least that I was told. But it, um, you were mistaken. Ah, okay, <laughs> I mistaken on that one. But I still imagine that you would boycott somebody who you know who had transgressed. But do you think then there could be a cost to art? Imagine he was an amazingly great artist, but who was also a, a rapist. What would you do? Um, I see. I feel like boycott is such a funny term to use when we talk about art because, like as viewers, as readers, as music listeners, we just kind of like listen to the things, we watch the things that we feel like watching. <laughs> like I haven't watched Star Wars ever and that's just because I have other things I want to do with my time. I'm not boycotting, you know what I mean? Like we, we're just people with preferences and we 
watch things that give us pleasure. We like go to museums where we want to see things that give us pleasure, right? Like, so it's like if the information you've learned is going to cause you to feel pain when you look at their artwork, you might not be boycotting it. You might just like rather go eat a chocolate cake and, you know, like we do, <laughs> we're just humans. Um, so, uh, but then again, on the other hand, like, because art is this sacred place, and I, I'm glad, Stanley, you brought in that um, those legal aspects to it, um, I think that it's important that we remember, and, you know, as I said at the beginning, like, that we see art as this place where fantasies can take shape, where they wouldn't have been able to otherwise in reality. So if you are a person who has conflicting feelings on the inside and you want to see a work by a person who you know is a rapist and made work about rape and that's going to help you from raping someone in your own life then like please go see that artwork <laughs> like go fulfill that fantasy through viewership rather than through practice so i think that um ultim you know for me personally like i don't I have better things to do with my time than like look at artwork that's going to cause me st inner strife. But it's not because I'm boycotting it. It's because I, I'm a busy person. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about <laughs> other people going to see the artwork of a known living rapist? Would you think they shouldn't do it? Or are you okay with it? People just, just do it. Yeah, again, I... I, I or buy a book. It's more actually because when you, if you buy something, you contribute something to them. You, uh, uh, they benefit from people's participation. Um, so I'm going to combine your question with the point that Nell made about it taking more than one person to make a book, right? It takes more than one person to make an artwork. Um, and ultimately, if the satisfaction of your impulse is going to be kicked once you've read that book and you can then go on and not murder someone in your life and not <laughs> rape someone in your life then like please go read that book you know what i'm saying like i think that art is necessary because it fulfills those crazy fantasies that we have and if we didn't have art we'd all just like be enacting our fantasies on each other and that would be mayhem so good i will leave <laughs> that let that go into our third theme can we imagine then a world where we only value the art of good people? And if so, who decides on the moral criteria? And I thought, Nell, maybe uh, sure. if you want to talk about well, that. Well, as a I'm fully good person. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, no, the opposite, in fact, right? Nobody is a good person. <laughs> um, if you were to take every element of my life, there would be countless grounds on which everyone would, would not want to read my books. Um, so, I mean, it's a provocative question, right? Because of course we can't. Of course no one is a, a pure person to the extent that every person in the world who's going to encounter their art is going to agree because there is no such thing as any kind of objective morality, and we know that. Um, but So I'm going to kind of twist it a little and say, what if actually seeking that out is helpful nonetheless? That um, it tends to be that these incredibly powerful white men are the people we are finding to have transgressed in some shocking and horrific ways and some less so. And if a movement away from those people opens up our attention to different kinds of artists, I think that's fine. I think that's great. And whilst I'm not suggesting that we cut them out, and I don't think there is such a thing as a world where we only look at good art, 
if this feeling that we're exploring today means that actually, you know what, we're not going to go see another Woody Allen movie. We're going to go see a movie by someone we haven't heard of who's a woman of color or a queer person or a non-binary person. That's brilliant. That gives us so much more access to new things. And seeking out people who haven't been known to rape someone or murder someone, that's great. I think we should do that. And Stanley, I would like to want you to say, um, could you imagine a criteria that somehow becomes inherent when you look at a piece of art or read a novel that because you one has become aware of um, like a moral standard, then you also use that as a quality reference. You know, like when one read Karen Blixen 50 years ago, you wouldn't have thought of her as a racist. Today, if somebody wrote um, out of Africa, in that way, you would consider the person a race, and should that then also be part of the value judgment? When? In, in today's world, oh, I, I don't say in the historical work. Laura Ingalls, who wrote uh, the stories known as the Little House on the Prairie stories, uh, which are very popular children's stories or young, young adult stories in the United States, and has long been celebrated um, uh, as an author of young adult stories. An award was given in her name each year for the author of new uh, and exciting young adult stories, that award will no longer be named for her uh, because it was decided upon re-examination of her work that some of the attitudes displayed in that work uh, toward especially Native Americans we would now uh, consider uh, reprehensible. This is the same issue that bedevils the United States uh, when in certain cities uh, there's a movement to take down the statutes, uh, statues rather, of Robert E. Lee uh, and other uh, Confederate uh, war heroes, even though those statues have been standing for 110 years uh, in, in, in some uh, instances. Uh, you have to decide at that moment whether or not you're going to let history uh, be history or believe that uh, the past uh, is, is, is more than prologue. Indeed, the past is happening now and over and over again. And I'm going to once again uh, in, uh, disclaim uh, any ability to answer those questions. Right. But just to pressure this point, if somebody wrote something similarly bigot today, wouldn't that be part of your judgment of a novel, for example, the quality of a novel, if there was a racist or very misogynist view? Well, it depends. It depends. There's a tradition in stand-up comedy uh, that what you do if you're a stand-up comic and you want to be uh, avant-garde, uh, want to be on the edge, is you look around for whatever at the moment uh, has the status of a sacred cow. That is something that no one uh, would uh, uh, say anything about. Uh, 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 anything uh, negative or sardonic about, and then you do exactly that. And the idea is that the, com the, the comedian, uh, as an artist, uh, has uh, the responsibility to not allow any ideas or sentiments, no matter how nobly presented, uh, uh, to stand uninterrogated. And therefore, it's the obligation uh, to satirize uh, and, 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 and to make fun. Now, of course, if you do, in fact, follow that obligation, your commercial interests will be diminished uh, because the commercial world will stay with the safe artists, whether comedians or novelists, sitcoms, you know, what happened to Roseanne Barr, uh, again, in the United States, 
so again, these are all extraordinarily complicated questions, but I will say I don't see any moral issue here. I just see uh, issues of commerce uh, and issues of what we might call artistic practice, which is itself always evolving and on the edge. Right. I want to move that one on, on to Emma. Do you think that um, we could internalize uh, the criteria of, uh, of being good or being moral, uh, being moral into the how we judge quality of ours? Art is a lived emotional experience. Like I, as an artist, make artwork because I feel shit and I have to put it out there. It's not an intellectual foray, right? Like. And I think that's true as readers, as listeners, and as viewers, right? We, we view art because we need to satisfy certain emotions. So I'd really love for us to get out of a place where we're like sitting there and judging art. Like, is this artwork good? Is this artwork bad? Like, I'd rather for us to be viewers in the theater, sitting there feeling like, am I enjoying this experience? Like, does this, does this music sound good to me? Like, if it does, then like, good satisfy that in the realm of art but if it's not and if the information you've learned is kind of making your experience shitty and it that happens to me like when i see a woody allen movie i feel creeped out because of the information i know i can't separate my intellectual abstract value judgment of the art from how it's making me feel in that moment so i would perhaps turn off the DVD or whatever. So can you retrospectively judge someone by our current moral standards if those standards weren't in place when the artist was alive? Or and Emma speaks about what <coughs> she if she knows, but there's so much we often wouldn't know. Um, how do you judge this? <coughs> you can't avoid knowing rev responding, feeling what your judgments would be by the criteria that are all around you and that you've absorbed in front. You can't avoid applying those to the art of the past, though you also try to adapt and understand the different perspective and so forth. Just on the question of whether good people, and uh, when you whether you can imagine, the question here, whether you can imagine uh, only value the art of good people, one should have in mind, on the one hand, one, doesn't, one turns away, as it were, from the idea of good people and good art. On the other hand, for hundreds of years, people imagined heaven, and the point about heaven was it was full of art. It was full of music, it was full of architecture, it was full of beauty, supposedly, which was supposedly good or high-class art and also produced by good people since it was produced by angels and pure souls. So you can imagine it. It's not what we have down here where the priorities are different. It's yeah. not in the real world. I mean, this has been so fascinating. I think we could go on for hours on this theme and we probably go for many years uh, people discussing this. So let me thank all of the speakers for an amazing debate and great insights. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. What did you think? Tweet us at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.